Coming up this week on the Thomas Jefferson Hour, we welcome Clay Jenkinson back from France. We talk about Jefferson's time in France. Jefferson said every man's first country must be his own, but every rational man's second country must be France. And you certainly get it when you go to Jefferson's France. Paris, Aix-en-Provence, the Canal de Midi, wine country. Jefferson's footprint in France is big, and he's beloved there, and you gain a real insight into Jefferson's aesthetics and his political radicalism by spending time in France. It was a delight. Jefferson really became a citizen of the world through his time in France, did he not? He did. We have to see him as sort of a frontiersman from, uh, he called a savage from the woods of America, going off to the world's most glittering cultural capital and being completely swept away by it and bringing some of that cultural knowledge back to the U.S. in November of 1789. Please join us for all that and more on this week's Thomas Jefferson Hour. Good day, citizens, and welcome to What Would Jefferson Do?, our weekly opportunity to discuss current and past American events with President Thomas Jefferson, who is seated across from me now, and good day to you, Mr. Jefferson. Good day to you, citizen. Mr. Jefferson, I wanted to touch on your time in France. There are those who say that this was one of the happiest times of your life and that you really became a world citizen after your time in France. Is that fair, sir? That's more praise, certainly, than I deserve. But I had wanted to go to Europe uh, from my childhood. When I was 20, I wrote to my boyhood friend, John Page, that we should take the grand tour together. You know, Vienna, and Strasbourg, and Paris, and Berlin, and Rome, and Naples, and uh, Pompeii, and, and so on. Uh, and then we would wind up in Egypt, uh, and I would buy a violin in Europe and so on. Well, we never were able to do that. That's a boy's fantasy. But when I was in my early 40s, after the death of my wife, Martha, Congress urged me to go to France as a minister at large to engage in commercial treaties with Prussia and Portugal and England and France and Spain and so on. And so I accepted that position and spent five years in France it helped me recover from the deep loss of the death of, of my wife, Martha, but it also opened to me a world that I had read about and seen images of in pattern books but had never experienced. And it was an extraordinarily rich five-year period of being in the most glittering cultural center of the world and having access to the greatest musicians and uh, painters and sculptors and conversationalists and scientists. It was a fundamentally important experience in my life, and I hope that I was able to bring back some ideas to this country, to the United States, from that, that time in France. You made some lifelong friends while you were in France, I think in particular uh, of Lafayette. I'd known him a bit in this country, but I didn't really meet him until the end of the war. But while I was there, he was almost my host, and he opened doors of different diplomats and artists and salons for me. He helped the United States win the support of the French people. He helped me in, in a range of diplomatic and economic matters. And he really couldn't have been more generous to me in every possible way. And because, as you know, he eventually came back on a farewell tour of the U.S. in 1824. And one of the places he spent a number of days was Monticello. So that, that friendship was really formed in France. You also spent some time uh, defending America against uh, charges of degeneracy. Yes, some European savants believe that our animals and plants and people were comparatively degenerate uh, with respect to the European counterparts. I knew this was a 
nonsensical notion of people who had never stepped foot in America. So I made it a campaign to convince the Comte de Buffon and others that our animals, if anything, were greater in size, stature, and fertility than those of Europe, and that we, as a frontier country, were already producing people like Benjamin Franklin and George Washington and David Rittenhouse, and so we were going to be a major cultural influence in the world. And so this was a one-man campaign to vindicate America against the skepticism of people who had wild eyes but had no capacity to observe actual life in a new republic. If memory serves, you actually uh, sent some proof to Europe, did you not? Yes, I had a panther skin sent over, and I, I wrote to Mr. Madison that I wanted a moose because I wanted to prove to Buffon that a moose is, is more magnificent than anything that Europe can offer. You want to talk about a magnificent animal? Look at a moose. So it's, it's fair to say, sir, that you did come back a citizen of the world after your time in France. I know that I was radicalized by the failure of, of the French regime under Louis XVI, and I realized that what had gone wrong there could go wrong for us. And so I wanted very much for us to avoid the pitfalls that happened to most nations, corruption, a swollen aristocracy, uh, an inefficient and unfair tax system, etc. And so I, I wrote a series of letters to my closest friend and ally, James Madison, from France, addressing these problems. How can we be a perpetually virtuous and equalitarian republic and not make the mistakes that had made most French people miserable while a handful lived like gods on earth? And so that was an important negative lesson for me. And I came back more cosmopolitan, to be sure, but more politically radicalized by what I had seen than I would have been if I had never gone. Thank you so very much, Mr. Jefferson. You are most welcome, sir. Good day, citizens, and welcome to this week's show. I'm your host, David Swenson. So pleased to be joined by its creator, Mr. Clay Jenkinson. And Clay, the last time you and I talked, uh, you were on your way to France, and and now you're back. And I was hoping we could take some time this week to talk about your trip to France and, and all that you saw and all that you did and the folks that went with you. Yeah, not just France, but Thomas Jefferson's France. And so... Jefferson spent five years in France between 1784 and 1789. They were amongst the most important years of his life. And so now for the third time, uh, twice in three years, I've taken a group uh, of mostly Jefferson Hour listeners, by the way, to Jefferson's France. And it's an amazing journey. And I learned a great deal uh, that I didn't know about Jefferson on this trip and was able to take uh, people from around the United States and beyond to key places in Paris that Jefferson had a relationship with and then on to the south of France. And we even got a day all together on the great Canal de Midi, the canal that he was so obsessed with and spent some time on in 1787. So it was a triumphant trip. And I'm always amazed, uh, my friends. I was in Toulouse 
in the south of France uh, the other day. I got up at dawn in Toulouse, France, and by 5 p.m. I was in my own home on the Great Plains of North Dakota. Uh, It took Jefferson 19 days to sail from Boston to England, and it took him more than a month to get from Boston to his diplomatic headquarters in Paris. Um, This involved boats and carriages and a ferry across the English Channel and nights in hotels that were sometimes of extraordinary primitiveness. A month to get to his post, it takes us about 11 hours to get across uh, the ocean to almost anywhere in Europe. Help our listeners out. For those who don't know, why did Jefferson go to France, the circumstances surrounding that? He went to France in 1784. Congress had named him earlier to be one of the peace commissioners to settle the treaty after the war. But by the time he got his um, kit together, um, the peace had been established and, and, and that commission was, um, was withdrawn. But then in 1784, he was asked to go to Europe, to France, to be a minister plenipotentiary to produce ideal commercial treaties with European powers, and if possible, to make inroads on the continent for American tobacco and rice and indigo and uh, timber, um, etc. Because, as I'm sure you know, until the war happened, until the revolution, our trading uh, supervisor was Britain. We were protected by the British Navy. Our trade was almost exclusively with Britain and the Caribbean. But with independence, Britain cut off our access to all of that uh, trade. And so our economy was languishing. And Jefferson was made a commissioner with plenipotentiary powers. That is not just limited to France. To see if he could open up some European markets to American trade goods. He wasn't particularly successful in this, no fault of his own, but that's what led him to France. And then when Franklin was finally allowed to retire as the American minister to France, effectively the ambassador, in 1785, Congress named Jefferson to replace him. And then he spent 85, 86, 87, 88, and a little of 89 uh, as the American ambassador to France. He didn't really want to go, is my understanding, and that he, he was in a position where he was devastated by the, the loss of his wife in, in 1782. And there were some folks behind the scenes that thought this would be good for him. Is that right? That's correct. His wife died on September 6th, 1782, at the age of 33. It was a shattering event in Jefferson's life. I mean, all of his plans had been for domestic happiness at Monticello. Uh, he had an extraordinary wife that he loved dearly. They had small children together. Uh, he saw himself as a Virginia squire who might maybe be governor or maybe a justice of the peace or whatever, but he didn't think of himself as a future president of the United States. And with her death, everything collapsed, and he was at loose ends, and he had uh, a really tough time of it. I would say he had a nervous breakdown, and he became a grieving widower. And friends of his who admired him were shocked by how um, devastated he was, by how debilitated he was. It was clear to some of them that that he might not recover, that you know he might he, he might never pull out from his grief. And so Madison, among others, thought, well, what if we send him abroad 
on a mission. Not only will he love European high culture, which of course he did, but this will take him away from the environs of his sorrow and maybe make it easier for him to uh, restore his um, equanimity and, and his vitality. And that's precisely what happened. Uh, Jefferson was not a good traveler. Uh, he got seasick um, often when he was at sea. Uh, but he was he accepted this post, of course. He had always wanted to go to Europe. You know, going on the grand tour of European cultural capitals was something that 18th century privileged white men did. And he had been planning to go there from the age of 20. It had never happened. And now uh, when he's 41 years old, uh, he finally has the chance to uh, see Europe um, in an official capacity. And so he accepted the post and he took his one child. Two others were left behind at Eppington with their aunt. But he took his older daughter, Martha, uh, Patsy, uh, with him uh, to France. And later, um, one of the other daughters died. But his, his second child, Maria, uh, joined them in France in 1787. So he was sent uh, on an official diplomatic mission. I suspect he was good at it. Was he successful? If ever anyone was a masterful administrator of a portfolio, writing all the letters, giving the kind of attention and promptness that things required, having uh, diplomatic suavity, you know, not pushing too hard the way John Adams did, um, Jefferson was an ideal diplomat because he was discreet. Uh, he was always prepared. He was always the best prepared person in every room that he ever entered. Uh, and he loved this country. You know, he, he was a champion of the United States in a way that Washington and John Adams weren't in equal measure. So he was an ideal diplomat. But what he hit was the wall of mercantilism. And by mercantilism, I mean state-sponsored monopoly of economies. So in Europe, there wasn't free trade. They protected key industries against foreign um, interventions. And so there wasn't free trade anywhere, really, in the world at this time. The United States was was this upstart ideal Republican experiment that was an advocate of free trade along the lines of Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations. But Jefferson hit the wall and privilege with a capital P um, and state-sponsored economic selfishness prevented him from succeeding. The only of all the treaties that he was able to produce was with Prussia, you know, today's Germany, which is a landlocked nation. And so from a diplomatic point of view, his, his time there was not pointless, but nearly so. A thing that that keeps coming to me is is the time that he spent in Europe with with other people. I mean, the the Adams were there. Franklin was there. And he also met a woman that um, you say in your notes, he fell in love for the last time to Maria Causeway. That's going to be contested, of course. So there are three significant romantic relationships, if you want to call them that, of Jefferson's life. First with his wife, Martha, 1772 to 1782, produced six children, four of whom died before they were 10 years old. Then at her deathbed in 1782, the family tradition is that Jefferson was asked never to remarry by his dying wife. He never did. But in France, he met Maria Cosway in August of 1786. She was a, a brilliant, diminutive, flirtatious musically talented composer and, and painter. He, he was swept away by her allure, let's put it, and he had a pl- probably platonic relationship with her that lasted intensely for many months and then sort of had a, an, some echoes for the rest of, of their lives. 
Um, but she was married and went back to London uh, with her husband, and, and that sort of put an end to that. And then, of course, there's Sally Hemings, and the Sally Hemings story, maybe it's a romance and maybe it's rape. It's almost certainly somewhere in between, but it certainly was a long-term relationship, lasted more than three decades and produced at least six children. So those are the three great romantic moments, if you want to call them that, of Jefferson's life. And Mrs. Cosway, in some ways, was the most extraordinary because in America, women were much more um, con carefully controlled. Uh, they were reserved. Uh, they were domestic in ways that French women and European women were not. And Maria Cosway was a kind of coquettish, aggressive, and magnificently beautiful woman. And she had all the qualities that Jefferson loved. She was a musician. She was a painter. She, she was um, uh, a lover of salon conversation. She loved landscape gardens. And so it's as if you had a fantasy. You know, you're Jefferson. You're married to an extraordinary American woman, but clearly an American woman. She unfortunately dies. You go to Europe, and then this sort of fantasy woman appears and sweeps you off your feet. Um, he, as you know, he eventually wrote an 11-page uh, dialogue to her called My Head and My Heart, uh, debating whether it was wise to fall in love with a woman that he couldn't spend the rest of his life with. And it's a celebrated letter of October 1786. So yes, and you know where he met her was at the Hall of Bled, which was an agricultural domed mercantile house in the center of Paris. And we went there two weeks ago. So I took a group of people. We walked over to the Hall of Bled. It's not there anymore, but one of the columns from the building uh, that was there in Jefferson's time still stands. And it's the, the new building is shaped like a dome. And so they've done justice, at least to the footprint of this great grain a mercantilist house, and it was there thanks to John Trumbull, the American painter, that Jefferson met Richard and Mrs. Cosway, and that's where the, the great spark occurred. So we went there, and then later, uh, with a smaller group, we went to the Bagatelle in the Bois de Boulogne. Uh, this is a, a miniature house that Jefferson and Mrs. Cosway visited together, and, and at the, it was at the height of their romantic effusion for each other, and you can see why. It's just one of those magnificent almost doll-like places in Paris. And so we were able to visit personal scenes from Jefferson's life, public scenes from Jefferson's life. And I know we're about to take a break. What became the model for the final version of Monticello, the Hotel de Somme, which was across the river from the Tuileries. When we come back, I want to talk more to you about uh, Jefferson and, and architecture, a subject I know you enjoy. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour.
Welcome back. This week on the Jefferson Hour, we're speaking with its creator, Mr. Clay Jenkinson, about his recent cultural tour to France and, and Jefferson's time in France. And before we get back into that, you, you are doing more and more of these cultural tours. I know um, you have one that you're very excited about, uh, planning to go to Greece, uh, correct, sir? So this year was France, and we had about 25 people. Um, we worked with a European travel group called Globus, and they're absolutely superb at the logistics of the thing. And next year at this time, September 15th through 23rd, 2023, that's 15 through 23 of next year, we're going to Greece. Now, Jefferson never got to Greece, but he was a classicist. And I, I think you know, David, that my earliest interest was classical culture, and I studied ancient Greek and Latin and so on. So we're going to Greece, and we'll go to Homer's Greece, largely, to uh, sites from the Homeric epics, the Iliad and the Odyssey, but also to Delphi and Athens and and Santorini, the most beautiful island in the world. So that's next year. And then the year following, back to France. I, I, I so love this France trip that I immediately uh, began to plan for one in 2024. So every fall, until I can't walk anymore, we'll be going on a European cultural tour, usually in the footsteps of Mr. Jefferson, but not exclusively. But this one was so so wonderful, David. You know, the French are terrific. And, of course, the food, the music the architecture, uh, the, the light in Paris. You know, we, we went up the Eiffel Tower. You get to the top of the Eiffel Tower where they sell you a glass of champagne. You look down on one of the world's most extraordinary cities, and you just think, I'm in, I'm in Paris. You know, I'm, I'm in Paris. The Eiffel Tower did not exist in Jefferson's time. He probably would have thought it a monstrosity, although he would have admired the engineering. But there's only one Paris, and Jefferson said, as I think you know, every man's first country is his own, but every rational man's second country must be France. And um, and he, of all the presidents of the United States, he was the most committed to French culture. He was the best at French style, some of which he brought back to Monticello and the country. And he's regarded by the French people as the American after Benjamin Franklin. You know, Franklin was always like an American in France. Jefferson was a cosmopolitan in France, and he, he, he became Frenchified in ways that uh, Franklin never did. And when he got back, you probably remember that his enemy, his frenemy, Patrick Henry said, and I'm quoting, Mr. Jefferson has abjured his native victuals. In other words, Jefferson is now eating French food and drinking French wine, and he's gone French on us. He's no longer really an American. When we, we took our break, I mentioned uh, architecture and how much France influenced Jefferson's love of architecture. And ours, too. So, you know, all but five states have uh, domed state capitals. Uh, and the U.S., of course, has a magnificent domed national capital building. That's Jefferson. He brought the neoclassical revival to the United States, uh, beginning with uh, the, the capital at Richmond in Virginia, which, by the way, does not have a dome. Uh, but this really set in motion this idea that when we build a state capital or a building of this importance, we should hearken not to American style, but back to the classical world of, of Greece and Rome. And so he had enormous influence in that way. But then two more specific things. One is that while he was in Paris, he saw the building of a, of a, of a new private hotel, a private building called the Hotel de Somme, S-A-L-M. And it had a dome. 
and he watched it being built. And he makes he writes this famous letter in which he says he got a chair and sat in the Tuileries across the Seine River from it and, and stared at it so long that the workman thought he was crazy or maybe going to commit suicide or something. And he said he had to, he twisted his neck to see it until he got a headache every day. But then he went back again and again and again. And, and at that point, he decided, you know what? When I get home, I'm tearing down Monticello, which did not originally have a dome. And I'm going to rebuild it with a dome. And it's going to look a fair amount like the Hotel de Somme. So we go to that building. And right in front of it, David, is a statue put up not so long ago, about 20 years ago, of Jefferson looking at it, holding in his hand, in his right hand, a quill, and in his left hand, the original design for Monticello, which had two stories but no dome. And so we go there, and that building really created our image of Jefferson. When you think of Jefferson, you automatically think of Monticello. And the second building was down in the south of France, in Nîmes. It's called the Maison Carré, which means the square building. It was built in the first century A.D. by the nephews of Augustus Caesar, the great first emperor of Rome. It's a Greek temple. And it's magnificently uh, preserved and now restored. And Jefferson believed it was the most perfect morsel of antiquity, as he put it. He had seen it in pattern books, but in 1787, he went to see it. And he said to a, a, an aristocratic woman friend of his in, in France, Madam, I sit here every day staring like a lover at his mistress at this building. And so he got a model made of it in plaster, which you can see in Richmond in the Capitol Interpretive Center. And he insisted that Virginia use that as the model for its great new capital. So he was deeply involved in building and architecture. He's America's first great amateur architect. And then, of course, eventually he produced Poplar Forest, his second home, and the University of Virginia. So he is an architectural genius in addition to all the other things that we regard as Jefferson's achievements. He also spent time with some uh, soon-to-be-quite-famous Americans. One of them was quite famous, and that would be Benjamin Franklin, but John and Abigail Adams were there as well. Can you talk about that a bit? <laughs> so he gets there and gets settled, and Franklin's there. And Franklin is old and venerable and beloved. He's America's first world historical celebrity. And Franklin by now is pretty indolent, let's say. Adams would say lazy. But he was beloved, and so every day he'd get up around 11 and have a little breakfast, and then carriages would roll up to his rural place at, at Passy, and aristocratic women and young men and people from the U.S. and people from all over the world would come to pay respects to the man who tamed electricity. And so Adams couldn't get him to do any work because Franklin is a celebrity. And so this made Adams sputter and enraged. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, that's the world into which Jefferson suddenly dropped. And he was able to get along very well with Franklin because, A, he understood that Franklin was venerable and you and one of the greatest men who ever lived, and therefore you defer to him in his advanced old age. But secondly, he knew that Franklin's style had gained us the French alliance and the French loans, and that Adams probably couldn't have achieved that because Adams was, you know, so much of a of a of a bully and and a kind of an aggressive New Englander and a righteous man who had no patience for a French style, and so Jefferson got along with Franklin in a way that Adams didn't. But he served as a kind of go between between them. But this was a great time. He and Adams were still very close friends. He and Abigail were were close friends at this time, and so you think of those three having for a while, daily meetings at Franklin's place at Passy on the western edge of Paris. It's probably the most glittering collection of Americans ever to uh, hang out. 
uh, in Paris. I'm always fascinated by um, Franklin's popularity in France, and I mean it was it was unheard of. Um, but he was this uh, sort of a rough American frontiersman, uh, grandfatherly type, and brilliant. Um, the, the French absolutely adored him. He was such a celebrity that there was there was merchandise about Franklin, and he helped to create a cult of simplicity that was also promoted by Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And the king, Louis the Sixteenth, became kind of amused, annoyed by all of this. So he, the room, the rumor is, and I think it's true, he had a a chamber pot, a porcelain chamber pot made with Franklin's image on the bottom. <laughs> that may be an apocryphal story, but it's certainly a good one. So Franklin was the real item. He took this a little farther than he would have needed to take it, but they just lapped it up in France. Um, and so this also drove Adams crazy because he knew that Franklin knew languages. Franklin was a, a printer and a writer and a diplomat and uh, the, the postmaster general of the United States and an, an important pure scientist, you know, a really serious uh, physicist and chemist. And so for Franklin to play this kind of frontiersman uh, bugged uh, John Adams, but almost everything bugged John Adams. But but it worked for it Franklin. Worked. It worked. I, 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 I'm kind of curious. Uh, you know, obviously Jefferson spent time one on one with Franklin. How much influence do you think Franklin had on Jefferson? Uh, some. I mean, Franklin was a full generation older than Jefferson, and so he looked down on Jefferson as this brilliant, idealistic young man. I think he 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 believed that Jefferson was a little brittle and maybe a little naive and too idealistic. Jefferson looked and he, up. He probably was. He was. You know. And Jefferson was, Jefferson was one of those people who tries not to be noticeable. You know, he he, he doesn't spread out and, and, and he's not the center of any room. Jefferson tries to be on the edge. You know, he's, he, his ego is under control. And so he worshipped Franklin. I mean, he thought Franklin was either the first or, most, or second most important American. So the only other rival would be George Washington. And he looked up to him intellectually and understood that Franklin was a genuine, serious, internationally acclaimed scientist, uh, not just a guy with a kite and a key out in a thunderstorm. And so he played chess with Franklin, and he he nearly won once. Um, (laughs) So Jefferson had kind of a, you know, that kind of almost worshipful respect for Franklin. But they were too distant in time and circumstance to be close friends. Uh, You remember that when Jefferson was agonizing over the Declaration of Independence, Franklin told a kind of funny story about that. And Jefferson said of Franklin, he had no enemies, that that he never contradicted anybody openly. He always asked a Socratic question or, you know, if he challenged somebody, it was in a very graceful way. And Jefferson said he's the epitome of what a person with good humor um, represents. And he, he envied all of that in Franklin. And he certainly acknowledged Franklin's greatness in terms of diplomacy. I mean, the, the French alliance, which brought us Lafayette and the French fleet and French loans, is probably the decisive factor in our winning the Revolutionary War. You uh, mentioned George Washington. I, I want to talk more about John and Abigail Adams, but when you mentioned Washington, he, uh, Jefferson had something to do with a statue being created, and that, that started in France, didn't it? All right, so the greatest sculptor in the world at this time was Houdon, H-O-U-D-O-N, and he, he sculpted Jefferson, he sculpted Franklin, he sculpted Lafayette, he, you know, he sculpted all sorts of people, and he was absolutely magnificent. If you, if you want to see his work, just Google it, Houdon. 
uh, pronounced Udon, and there was going to be a, a, a life-size standing, a pedestrian statue of George Washington to be in the rotunda at the new Capitol in Richmond. And so Jefferson said, oh, there's, you know, there's only one person who can do that. It's got to be Udon. And so this was not the 21st century. So he eventually convinced Congress to do it with money they didn't really have. Then he approached Udon. It was not that eager to take a you know, a year-long trip to the New World, to the howling wilderness of America, to measure the face and the body of George Washington. But Jefferson convinced him to do it. So Udon crossed the Atlantic, measured, and drew. Washington went back and produced this statue, which is still uh, standing at the center of the Capitol at, at Richmond. It's one of the most magnificent pieces of sculpture I've ever seen. I think it's certainly the greatest piece of American sculpture. Uh, and, and who was behind it? Jefferson. If there hadn't been Jefferson, Adams never would have done this. Uh, Adams d didn't care a rip about such things. But this was this was Jefferson's exquisite, creative, and artistic sensibility and a kind of Jeffersonian stubbornness. He not only demanded that Udon be the sculptor of Washington, but he also demanded that the Maison Carré in Nîmes be the model for the new capital at Richmond. And Back home, Madison and the people who had to fulfill all these projects were rolling their eyes and saying, you know, it's good that Jefferson's a genius because he's kind of annoying. Well, then let's move back to John and Abigail Adams. Uh, when they were in France and Jefferson was in France, uh, at, at that point they were still pretty good friends, not the antagonists of each other that they would later become. And Abigail Adams in particular, um, you you see her her wit and her uh, powers of observation, I guess, is the way I would say it. She's one of the great letter writers of American history, and she wrote fabulous letters about France with a kind of puritanical wit. And so the most famous is her description of Madame Helvetius, who was, you know, Franklin's fake lover. They faked that they were in love with each other, and they would hug and kiss and, and so on, flirt openly. And they were two elderly people. And this, there's a famous letter in which um, Madame Helvetius comes in and she doesn't have enough clothes on in terms that Abigail Adams would approve. And then she sits slouched back in her chair in a way that no lady would ever sit. And she puts her arm around Franklin at dinner. And eventually her little lapdog wets the floor. And Abigail said, and if you can believe it, she used her dress, her chemise, to wipe up the pee. And so Abigail's just coming undone over this. Um, Jefferson's finding it all pretty amusing. So Abigail, at that time, and Jefferson were very close friends, and John, too. And they had, of course, been two of the five members of the committee that drafted the Declaration of Independence and two of the most important people in the Second Continental Congress, et cetera, et cetera. But, David, the first crack came while they were in Europe because Shays' Rebellion occurred in western Massachusetts, where Daniel Shays and others... Uh, objecting to the commercial dislocations of the war, shut down some um, farm foreclosures and so on, bullied some justices of the peace. This is known in history as, as Shays' Rebellion. And how people reacted to it told us a lot about who they were. So Jefferson wasn't there, of course, but he reacted in his usual way. He said, I like a little rebellion now and then. It's as important in the political world as thunderstorms are in the natural world. We can, we can live with this. This is a sign that the American people still have the spirit of liberty. John and Abigail Adams were appalled by that. They saw this as mayhem, anarchy, 
the way the way people think about the January sixth riots in the Capitol, they just saw this as the beginning of of chaos. And to have Jefferson say, you know, this is okay. We should not, we shouldn't really discourage this sort of thing too much. That was the first crack. That's the first time in private they must have said, "Who is this guy? You know how how reliable is this guy? He's he's sort of a radical." And so this is the the beginning of a series of moments, that, including the French Reign of Terror, that drove the Adams away from Jefferson and Jefferson away from them, and eventually culminated in the breakdown of the friendship after the election of 1800. And, and Jefferson wrote a number of letters to James Madison, um, uh, thoughtful letters about uh, how radical uh, the failed state of France was. So we travel around in this coach in France. We're in Paris for three days, and then we go to the south of France, and we were on the canal, and we went up actually into the mountains, or Jefferson's route to Italy when he went to peep into the classical world, and we actually took the coach up to this this place where Jefferson could look over the Alps into Italy. And so it was a really extraordinary, extraordinary journey, David. But while he was, on the last day, we had a seminar in this hotel before we everyone went home for a couple of hours, and I talked about these letters. So what he saw in France was a failed state. He said, here's a beautiful country you know, with great fertility, 20 million people, 19 million of whom are absolutely miserable and can't put bread on the table. He said, here's a failed state. How can we avoid in our own happy republic ever going down that path of corruption and inefficiency and governmental waste and class systems and so on? So he wound up writing a series of very, very important letters to his closest friend, James Madison, wrestling with, do you ever have to redistribute property? Can one generation control the next generation. Is the Constitution perpetual or should it be torn up from time to time, etc.? So he was really looking at the failed state of France and saying, what lessons can we draw and how can we apply those lessons to make sure America remains a virtuous republic and not just another nation in the history of nations? I love those letters. That's really the takeaway, that, that Jefferson didn't just fall in love with Maria Cosway and great music and, and architecture in France. He really came back to this country in 1789, a determined liberal, we'd call him, but a determined believer that we must be proactive in preventing the United States from becoming a class-ridden uh, oligarchy. Great. There's a number of things that I want to ask you about, but they're going to have to wait for a moment because we need to take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour.
Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour. This week we're speaking with Clay Jenkinson about Jefferson and France and Clay, your recent cultural tour to uh, France. I'm going to sneak in one quick letter from a listener uh, because we're talking about cultural tours. Ben Maples wrote and wanted to know if there's going to be a Cuba tour coming up in 2023. You mentioned you're going to Greece, um, but are you going back to Cuba? Yeah, Greece, September 15th through 23rd, not Jefferson, but Homeric Greece, and one of my first loves, so I really hope people will join us for that. And these trips, uh, they change my life and my perspective, and I think they do of our guests, too. And by the way, not to forget the question about Cuba, but as usual, David, everyone on the bus said, who's this Swenson? Does he exist? Are you just throwing your voice? Why doesn't he ever show up at anything? Can we? Can we what would it take for you to get him to come on a trip? And I just say, look, folks, if I've asked him once, I've asked him a thousand times to join us. He just, he's a, he, he just likes, he's candied. He likes to stay home and tend his garden. If you want to see him, come to North Dakota. We'll put the blindfold on. We'll go to the barn. I'll, we'll make an introduction. But if you expect yeah, yeah, him. Yeah, 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 yeah. What about Cuba? It's all true. It's all, they all ask about you and they say, don't oh, ever get rid nice. of Swenson. If you, I'm flattered. He said, let, let Swenson get rid of you. But don't get rid of Swenson. <laughs> it's all true. Anyway, Cuba. So we're not going in 2023, and here's why. It's just too much trouble right now. The pandemic, uh, the collapse of the Cuban economy, the the inflationary cycle that's hit them, of course, harder than others. But but will you go again yes, sometime? Yes, 2024 will go. But we there you delayed. Go, we're delaying because it's just the, the yo-yo effect of first Obama, then Trump, now Biden. Our policies in Cuba have been insane for 65 years. They continue to be really irrational and things are going to get better but they're not quite there yet ben maples keep listening and i'm sure that clay will keep you apprised i miss it yeah i know you do there are a number of influences uh, on jefferson that came from france at the risk of piling too much into one question uh, wine is a big deal um his wine tour i know he went uh, shopping when he shouldn't have uh, and spent a fortune to bring things back to Monticello. He also brought back a number of uh, famous recipes, and he fell in love with European gadgets, which, I, you know, that was my first thing with, with Jefferson is he's a gadget guy. He's an 18th century gearhead. So he brought there back waffle irons, and he, he brought back recipes for ice cream and for baked Alaska, although it wasn't called that then, and for other things. And his protege, William Short, went on the grand tour, and Jefferson said, Go to Naples and find me a macaroni press because pasta was just something brand new. In fact, when first, when people first ate pasta at Jefferson's White House, they're like, "What's this?" There was no pasta in the United States. There barely any, and you know, pasta was really just being invented in Italy. So he brought back all these gadgets, and of course, he redesigned a plow while he was there, observing a French peasant plowing. And he brought wine dumb waiters and food dumb waiters and lazy Susans and you name it. Jefferson saw all sorts of wonderful things, including louvered windows. You know the the, the kind of um, skylight windows that can that can turn on a pivot. He just fell in love with all this and brought back the ideas. But he also went on this unbelievable shopping spree, David. You know he didn't have a dime really, and it, he overspent his his um, diplomatic salary by magnitudes. He remodeled all the houses he lived in in France, even though he was only going to be there for a few months or years. Um, and he went on the shopping spree and he brought back 85 crates of stuff. So, you know, when, when we were shopping there, people were saying, oh, I get that, but I can't get it in my luggage. You know, might be overweight. 
Jefferson brought on ship 85 large crates of sofas and chairs and china and linens and silver and ceramics and knockoff paintings of European masters. And I, I don't get it. I don't get it. You know, you, you said uh, he couldn't afford it. How in the world did he get credit or loans or how did he pay for this stuff? Jefferson was hopelessly in debt all of his life. And the credit systems were quite generous. Now he bought all this stuff. I'll pay for it somehow. Gets it back to the United States. He does eventually pay for it, but it takes forever. And his creditors are, one time his creditors kind of came after him in France. And he wrote this letter saying, I can't sleep. I'll never sleep again until I get this under control. I'm going to go on this diet. I'm not going to spend any more money. And then like three weeks later, he's ordering cases of wine and you know new scientific instruments and new writing machines. And he, he spent like a today's millionaire or billionaire. But the difference is he couldn't pay for it. How he got away with it, it's hard to fathom. There are books written about it. And of course, you have to admire him in a certain way because that, that's who Jefferson is. Well, I don't know about that. But, but the, the wine tour that he did, I think, is really interesting. And didn't you uh, spend some time when you were in France discussing that? Yes, and we went to a couple of vineyards and had wine tasting and so on, but which are all great fun. Yeah, he went on this wine tour. You know, he broke his wrist in a, in a romantic interlude with Mrs. Cosway. They advised him to go to Aix-en-Provence for the mineral waters, so he used that He, he was showing off and jumped a fence or something, right. he, didn't he? Right, he? he went not very well. He tripped. So he, <laughs> his, his advisors say, Aix-en-Provence, the water's there. They may you know, heal this swollen wrist. So down he went, but he was really only using that as an excuse. And he went on a systematic wine tasting and um, cultural tour of France, taking extensive notes on trellising and vine stocks and what kind of diseases and what kind of soils and how much rain there was and, and what were the best wines of Bordeaux? What were the best wines of Burgundy? What were the best wines of Dijon? Um, and he, I mean, he became America's first tremendous wine connoisseur and became the wine advisor to the other four of the first five presidents of the United States. Uh, he helped to develop the Bordeaux wine classification system that didn't come until 1855. I mean, he was a genius in that regard also. So he then introduced French wine to the White House, which it's been serving ever since. Um, and they continue to feel the need to serve French wines because of Jefferson's massive early influence on such matters. And, and some of those wineries, David, um, most of them still exist, and many of them have cultural memories of Jefferson. It's astonishing to see his footprint in France. Well, there is a little bit of darkness in um, his time in France, and we mentioned it, I think, in the first segment, and that would be Sally Hemings. And, and Abigail Adams was the first to sort of flag this. Uh, can, <laughs> can you talk about that? So Jefferson brings one daughter, uh, Martha, leaves two back in Virginia. While he's gone, his younger daughter, Lucy, dies of whooping cough and teething. So now he wants his second daughter, Maria, and he takes a long time because Maria doesn't want to come. In fact, she barely remembers her father. But didn't they kidnap her kind they of? Kinda, uh, they kind of the tricked her onto board a ship. And Jefferson asked for an elderly black woman to be her uh, chaperone, her escort. That woman had smallpox, so she wasn't able to come. And so his kin, the Epps, back in Eppington, sent Sally Hemings instead. Sally Hemings was 14 years old. She was a mixed-blood young woman from a family that was important in the Monticello world. And when Abigail saw 14-year-old Sally Hemings escorting 9-year-old uh, Maria to France, she thought, uh-oh, 
Um, anyway, she came um, and is there for a couple of years, and her brother James was already there. That's maybe one reason why she was sent. And so James Hemings had been sent out to become a French chef at Jefferson's expense. Sally Hemings was a, a household domestic at Jefferson's place at the Hotel Langeoch. And if they had this relationship, which almost surely they did, it's said to have started in Paris. So he's a 44-year-old man now with a 14-year-old mixed blood uh, American enslaved young woman. So it's, you know, it's the Jefferson Hour is gaining new listeners all the time. And I can, you can tell when a new listener pops up, they'll email us and say, you know, how could you talk about this man? You know, he was, he did this and he did that. And, and uh, he was a slave owner. And, you know, we do talk about that a lot. I do think it's, it's really interesting, this period in France with Sally and James Hemings and, and the fact that when Jefferson left France, they would not have had to return with him. Slavery was outlawed in France. Can you kind of get into that? You're absolutely right, David. So French law um, prohibited slavery. And a man coming into France with enslaved people was required to register them. Jefferson did not. He just somehow made it through. While they were there, James was sent out to become a French chef, and he did become one. Sally stayed with him at uh, his uh, diplomatic headquarters. He had them both inoculated for smallpox while they were there, which was a very complex thing then. And towards the end of their stay there, they came to Jefferson, brother and sister, and said, hey, we've uh, discovered that slavery is illegal here in France. We could get a, a, a pro bono lawyer and declare our independence. There's nothing you could do about it. You can't make us go back to the United States with you. And Jefferson said, that's right, you can. And they said, what are you going to do about it? You know, Why should we go back with you? And this is according to uh, Sally Hemings' son, Madison, who gave a, 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 a history in the 1870s. And he said that Jefferson agreed to do two things. He said, if you come back with me, James, and teach somebody else French cookery, I'll free you and give you some startup money. And Sally, if you come back with me, any children you have, I will free uh, by their 21st birthday. And I don't think he necessarily meant children by himself, but any children that you happen to have, I will free. And he did. He freed her children, and he did free James Hemings and gave him $50, which then was a large amount of money. Uh, and James went up to Philadelphia. So he fulfilled that bargain, but they were right, and he, he knew they were right. But here's what's, what's so interesting. He persuaded them to return with him. You know, they could easily have, I just read about this yesterday, there were pro bono lawyers in Europe who would handle these things. They could easily have spent the rest of their lives in France. James was fluent in French. He by now was a chef. Sally Hemings was apparently a very attractive woman. She had domestic skills of sewing and, and cooking and so on. They could easily have spent the rest of their life in free France and not gone back. Of course, they had kin back at Monticello. But it's a very, very, very intriguing story and a depressing one because Jefferson should have said, "By, of course you must stay in France. This is, of course, this is what we should have done in the United States is what we will eventually do. Of course, I, I, I'll be sorry to, to lose you, but of course you should be free. But he didn't. He persuaded them to come back. And it, 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 the Sally Hemming story in some ways is even less worrisome to me than the James Hemming story. You know, if you come back and teach somebody else the 
the cooking skills that I at great expense have had you learn, well, then maybe I'll free you. It's just so, so selfish and so, so self-interested in, in, in a kind of delightfully ugly and ugly but delightful way. Well, we could spend an entire episode discussing this. And As I, we actually, do. I, I, think, I think we have, yeah. Um, so Jefferson went to France. He came back, um, and all of a sudden he was, I think you would say, a citizen of the world um, because of the influences uh, of his time in Europe. Is that fair to say? We're in Paris. We're near the Hotel de Somme. There's this beautiful statue of Thomas Jefferson. You know, there's a Washington there, too, and there's a Franklin, but it's Jefferson. He's, he's America's greatest Francophile. We go to the Canal de Midi, and there are these bronze plaques at different places on the canal summarizing his life and career. You know, he's beloved, and he's understood to be an American who really got France, who really loved and understood France and was a friend to France. And to see that much influence, to see that his presence there even now is as big as it is, and we didn't even go to the great Bordeaux wineries where he's remembered as a you know a hero of wine culture, it's really moving to me, David, and it's worth a trip to France just to see that. This plaque we saw on the canal, there's no other plaque, and the only plaque is to Thomas Jefferson who spent nine days on it. You know, it's not as if he spent his life as a canal worker or something or an engineer. He had a nine-day trip, but he's commemorated because of his deep, passionate love of France. And he came back so deeply cosmopolitan, and he had to come back to a much more primitive world, and particularly when he got to Washington, D.C., which was just a startup village when he became president in 1801. And he wanted to stay in France, not forever, but he was planning to go back. But when he got back in November of 1789 on a leave of absence, there was a letter waiting for him when he got back to Virginia, and it was from the new president of the new Constitution, George Washington, saying, I've nominated you to be Secretary of State, and the Senate has approved. I assume you'll take up that office. And Jefferson was in a dilemma. He wanted, he said he wanted to go back to France. He had left a lot of his belongings there. He hadn't really tidied up. And now Washington was insisting that he become Secretary of State. Jefferson accepted it because that was the right thing to do. He hated being Secretary of State. It led to one of the most unhappy periods of his life after maybe the most happy period of his life. But that's the nature of Jefferson's sense of duty. That's an interesting comment. I don't think I've ever heard you say that, that his time in France may have been the happiest of his life. Because he was fine. You know, he... he how how can we even explain this? You know, he was a deeply cultured man. You know, he was a great amateur violinist. He had a an understanding of, of painting and sculpture. He was America's greatest architectural aficionado. He knew wine inside and out. He knew landscape gardening. He was one of those people who was just superbly educated in the fine arts and in the in the in the history of high culture. But in the United States it's huts and frontier villages and grub. He goes to France and he sees it all in its finest um, epitome. You know, it's 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 not London, it's not Berlin, it's France. France is the cultural capital of the world at the time, and he, of course, he's just swept away by all of it, and he has to come back to a much more primitive world, and he comes back to a much more conservative world. It's Calvinist, it's Puritanical. Women are much more um, uh, kept down and controlled 
in American life, what he saw in 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 and there was slavery. And and slavery was everywhere. And his daughter Martha, when they came back, was appalled by it and said, Papa, you know, I don't we have to do we, we gotta get out from under slavery. It's just too it's too oppressive to see this form of human exploitation day after day after hour after hour. And so he came back, but you know, he wasn't the kind of person who said, Oh, I I long to be back in Paris. Jefferson was a deeply patriot. A deeply patriotic American, and he 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 wanted to improve our arts to a certain extent, but he wanted to make sure that they didn't come at the expense of a class system or a cultural class system. Well, sir, I'm so pleased that you had such a great trip to France this time, and, and I welcome you back. It was a spectacular journey. I come back a little sobered uh, because we're in such trouble as a nation at the moment, and it's a little disconcerting to see how our status in Europe has fallen because of the chaos in American life. But I'm a deep patriot too and glad to be here. And Greece next year, I can't wait to take people to Homer's world of Greece. Greece is a whole different kettle of fish and I'm glad to be able to bring these stories to the Thomas Jefferson Hour and thanks to all the people who came on the trip and those who come on these trips, you know, they're all seated by the Thomas Jefferson Hour. The Jefferson Hour is really the basis of the the Loxall Lodge winter encampments and the summer Lewis and Clark trips. And by the way, the salmon trip is not quite full for next summer, July 31st through August 9th, uh, Lewis and Clark on the Salmon River in Idaho. It's just a pleasure. I, I, I sometimes kind of metaphorically pinch myself, David, to think that all this has been made possible by me dressing up in tights and buckled shoes. So thank you, everyone. We'll see you next week for another important edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is brought to you each week by Dakota Sky Education. The program is distributed nationally by Prairie Public. President Thomas Jefferson lived from 1743 to 1826, and this program presents his views. President Jefferson is portrayed by the award-winning humanities scholar and author Clay S. Jenkinson. This program is also available online at jeffersonhour.com and on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to correspond with President Jefferson or submit a question for him to answer on the program, please visit the website at jeffersonhour.com. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is produced at Makoche Recording Studios in Bismarck, North Dakota. Bach Cello Suite Number no. 3 in C Major by Stephen Swinford. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again next week for another thought-provoking, historically accurate program, Through the Eyes of Thomas Jefferson. Mm -hmm.